0: When we were living in Fort Worth, they had the World Gymnastic Championships in Tarrant County Convention Center. And I wasn't that hot on gymnastics, wasn't planning to go. The tickets were, the price of the tickets were outrageous. But we had a fellow visiting from Canada who was staying in Fort Worth for a few weeks and he wanted to go and to see that. And so he, he bought some tickets and invited my wife and my family, myself, to go watch the World Gymnastic Championships, getting prepared for the um, uh, Moscow Olympics. And I sit in there and watch these guys from all over the world, the greatest athletes from all over the world come out, and these magnificent uh, muscled bodies, the fine-tuned and toned, muscled bodies. And here we were sitting up in the uh, grandstands, you know, all of us overweights, munching on our popcorn. And uh, out came these young men and women with these magnificent bodies and began to perform. It was amazing. They could do, um, what they did was phenomenal. And um, watching them was to see a, a, a symphony of grace and power. In motion, they had the uh, they had the grace of a ballerina, and they had a, the power of a lumberjack. And as they went through this uh, these exercises of coordination and strength, we just sat there um, in uh, enthralled by it. Uh, Jesus made some some uh, amazing predictions about the church. He said that one day the world would stand amazed when they looked at the love of the church. And one day he said the world would stand in awe at the unity of the church. And those predictions came true. Or there came a time when this um, divided, hostile world, this world that was so unaccustomed to anything like love, Begin to watch this new movement of God as it began to expand across the world. And they said, my, how those Christians love one another. And they stood amazed at the unity of the church. Now when a body is healthy, that body becomes a movement of grace and coordination and strength and power. And Jesus said that the church is the body of Christ and when that body is functioning as it was intended and was designed and when there is health in the body and when all the members of the body are in coordination, it becomes a great movement of power and design and the world stands amazed at it. But when something happens, brings unhealthy the body becomes unhealthy, there's disease, and there's some effect in the functioning of the, of the body limbs, of the members of the body, then that body forfeits its right to be heard by those who are discerning enough to demand that our practice be equal to our profession. And I have noticed in the experience that I've had, that's not much, but in the experience that I've had, There are some principles and there are some factors that are always present and always applied when the body is healthy and when that body becomes that conversation piece that amazes the unbelieving world. I want to look at those four factors this morning. Number one, every member of the body serves under one head. The physical body was designed to function under one head so that every limb, every tissue, every muscle functions under that head. If there, are, if there is a body that has two heads, it is a freak, it is a monstrosity, it's something you read about or hear about, some sideshow, some circus. For every physical body was designed to function under one head. That is true of the spiritual body. And the head of the body of Christ is Christ Himself. Uh, Isn't it amazing how many members of the body want to be the head of the body? And they sometimes lobby for that authority. And sometimes we jockey for that position. And we just know that if. Things were done my way, our way, according to my scheme, according to my plan, that everything would function well and be successful in the church. I have searched everywhere I know to search, and I have found that there is only one head of the church, and his name is Jesus. And if you want to turn sometime to that marvelous book, that epistle that deals with the Triumphant Church calls the Book of Ephesians. You will turn to the first page of it and find, and He put all things in subjection under His feet, and gave Him as Head over all things to the Church. And you turn the page. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto Him who is the Head, even Christ. And you turn the page. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. And you turn the page. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. The head of the church is Christ. And Lightfoot, in his marvelous commentary says that means That he is the church's guiding, compelling, controlling, sustaining power. He is its mainspring of activity. He is the center of its unity. He is the seat of its life. Christ is the head of the church. And when you have the head, every member, every Tissue, every limb responds to the signals that the head, the brain give to the body. I've wondered sometime. Now I'm not, I'm not prepared to suggest that this church doesn't function in unity. It's the most unified, loving church I've ever pastored. I'm saying that sincerely. But I have observed and I've wondered sometime, why is it that that in some churches there are all these um, uh, dissections and all of these um, uh, uh, breaks and disunity, and all this disunity. What what causes that so that everybody feels that his way is the right way and, and there is chaos instead of unity? I think I know the answer to that. I think that whenever the church Crowns Jesus and allows Jesus and places Jesus to, at the headship and to the authority and the lordship. There is, and everybody functions on the basis of the signals he gives. There is absolutely always and at all times unity in that fellowship. So it works in the physical body. I went out hunting one time, I remember it distinctly. I was just a young boy, I went out with my father and we went down the Brazos River. We had one gun, one shotgun. And we were walking along in these weeds and undergrowth and I I heard, I heard this rattle. I had never seen a rattlesnake. I had never heard a rattlesnake before. But as we walked along this undergrowth in these weeds, I heard this rattle and this little signal in my brain, this one loud word went off, run, you know, just, just no mistake about it. And And every muscle in my body got into the run position, I mean my feet, my legs, my whole body got into the go position. And it didn't take me a half split second and I was moving fast, in fact, I didn't even, couldn't even hear my father. My, my, my ears were ringing, run, you know. Everything about my body was in response to that signal. Run, go, get out of here. And my father was shouting back, come back and bring the gun, for God's sake. Come back and bring the gun. When the, uh, when the signal goes off from the head and every member of the body is joined to that, that head, every one of us moves together. And I've heard it said, there never will be a time, there never will be a church when there is absolute unanimity so that everybody responds the same way all the time. That is is not true. There is oneness and movement together when everybody is connected to the head and the head gives the signal, we all respond. I've been asked, well, what part then does the pastor play? Well, you know, I know some um, uh, structured uh, uh, ecclesiology that has that the pastor is a kind of a coach. He kind of has these uh, celestial headgears that hooks up to, the, uh, you know, to, to God. And he just gets these signals direct from heaven and he tells the players what to do. And there's some pastors who serve kind of like a chairman of the board and they meet together with the, uh, with the deciding group, with the decision makers of the church, and he's kind of the chairman of the board and they all make these big decisions and he comes back to interpret to the body the decision that the decision makers have made. It's difficult for me to illustrate this morning um, the role of the pastor, as I see it, because there is nothing in the earth that illustrates it except the church. And as I see it, the pastor is that person who clings to the head. Turn sometime to Colossians two sixteen, and he says the reason why there is disunity in the fellowship is because you're not holding fast to the head. And the pastor is that person as I see it who holds fast to the head and in the overflow of that relationship, that vital union, the people live in the overflow of his relationship and his role as I see it is to help the people hold fast to the head and when they're holding fast to the head, they get the signal from the head and we all move together. Nobody gets angry. Everybody goes together. Isn't that beautiful? Every member of the body functions under one head. Principle number two, all the different members function together. I want you to look now, if you've got your Bible there, verse 14, for the body is not one member but many. Verse 20, but now there are many members but one body. just says it the same way, reversed. And in between verses 14 and 20 there are these two laws as I see them that must come into effect in the church two laws get them put them down somewhere I want you to get them number 1 the first law you must function as you are and not as you prefer to be verse 15 Now can you just see this uh, conversation going on between the foot and the hand and the foot saying I want to be a hand cause I'm not a hand I'm not important to the body. Oh I wish I were a hand. If I were a hand you know the hand is always out there you know and and in in, in in up front you know you, with your hand you give a warm welcome and a strong handshake with your hand you perform works of art and mighty deeds. I want to be a hand I'm a foot I'm not important. I mean, I'm confined to, to, to be socked away in somebody's sock crammed down in some dark shoe. Nobody ever sees me. I wish I were a hand. Now, I know I, I've given this illustration before, but, but it's the best one I know. Besides, you need to know that I was a Little League baseball coach anyway. You, just, you need to know that. I need to keep reminding you of it. And I got my team out. First team I ever coached. and I got my boys out there and I had 13 of them show up and I said, "Okay fellas, now I don't know any of you. I've never seen any of you play, but we're just going to get our little team together and I want you to play what you want to play. Your position, he said, I said, now kind of the uh, it's important to have some good pitchers. I need a pitcher. All of you who are going to play pitcher. Line up over here. Had 13 pitchers. <laughs> I didn't have any catchers or you know, first baseman or third baseman. Everybody wanted to play pitcher. Well, I said, now, we're going to have a little bit of a problem there because the mound is just not big enough for all of us. And and besides, they might accidentally, I know they're not going to hit your fastball, but you might get one over they could hit and nobody would be there to catch it. So I'm going to kind of distribute you out. And I got my team out there and I had a boy that was a dandy pitcher. My son wasn't half bad, but um, this, boy, you know, I mean, he could play pitcher because he's the coach's son. And so... We, we had this left-handed fireballer, and man, he was great. And we had this little boy who was jealous of him, and he was a fantastic catcher, but he wasn't a pitcher. Well, he told me, he said, if you don't let me pitch, he said, I'm going to quit. And I knew he had about four players that just kind of ran around with him, so I thought, well, now, if I lose this boy, I've lost my half my team. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll let you pitch Friday, Friday night. And he got up there, and he couldn't get the ball close to the plate. But he was rearing back and letting her fly. And, and they'd, we'd get four balls and they'd walk. And they had the bases loaded. And he'd walk or run in. And they, he never did get anybody out. And finally he decided he'd just lob it up there, you know, just kind of not, not, not go through the fastball stuff, just lob it up there. And so he just kind of lob it up there. He was going about 15 miles an hour to the plate and 115 going back out toward the outfield. They were blasting everything he put up there. So he kind of looked over at me and I was sitting over there in the, in the dugout, you know. And I could hear what he was saying. Coach, I'm sorry. I have made a mistake. Take me out. Get me out of this. But I wouldn't do it. I just left him in there. And he got bombed about 20 runs before I ever went in there to get him. I took him out and put him in at catcher, and he was the greatest catcher from then on. I mean, he never never complained about it. Not everybody's a pitcher. Now, I want to take off my little uh, tag this morning which says pastor on it. I just want to talk to you right out of my heart because I believe that we're at a crossroads in the life of our church. I really believe that. I've met this week with some of the, of the people on our committees. I believe we're at a crossroads in the life of our church. We're going to have to grow some way and expand. And so we're talking about our nursery back here. Now hear me now. Our nursery is, is jammed and overcrowded. I'm told, I hate to admit this over the radio, but I'm told we're having put babies on the floor back there. So many of them. And some services, they had to take the children to another location. So we talked about uh, how, to, how to move out into the fellowship hall with some space. Now this is, these are good problems. We're going to have to grow that nursery. is tremendously overcrowded. Let me tell you what, we can get space if we have to go from here to the north part of town. What we need in the nursery are workers. We need some catchers. Now you may think that that's a... That's a, you know, a menial task, a babysitting task. It's not a babysitting task. It's the beginning place where children are taught and trained. We need some catches, and we're not going to grow. We could put all kinds of room and space and grow and enlarge and bring new buildings and put them out there on that vacant lot, but if we expand and grow and have nobody to keep those children, we're still in bigger trouble than before. And we're going to begin a television ministry right away and it's been under my leadership as the pastor in the overflow of my vital union with God I've suggested that we order that television equipment and we don't have the money to pay for it. That doesn't concern me at all. What concerns me is that we get this television equipment in here we need some catchers to run it. Some people who are willing no longer to sit in a pew on Sunday morning, but people who belong to the fellowship of this church who will take part of the responsibility and the load. And I may be talking to some this morning who are Sunday morning onlys. God bless you and you're wonderful. Some of you are my best friends and the finest people, the greatest support I have in Durant, Oklahoma. My plea to you is for you to consider the fact that God has placed you in this body to be a vital part of its function to man some of these television cameras, to be in that behind the scene that takes place on Sunday morning so we can get this message out over all the stations in these 24 hours that we have this channel that's available to us. And somebody needs to to, to man that nursery and, and we're needing to expand in so many areas of the Sunday school and start new departments. And the only thing that's keeping us from doing it is the people to man those departments, people who are called of God and gifted. I'm convinced that that if we don't have the money when that television equipment comes in, I, I, I am one person who would say we'll not buy that equipment. We'll pack it up, put it in a box, and send it back rather than borrow the money to purchase it. It's a crossroad day in our church. And my great appeal is that every member of the body must function together if this body is to be what it is. Now we all are excited about growth and there's nothing more exciting than the fact that we haven't had places for people who come in here last Sunday morning. This thing was wall to wall and that's why these chairs are here. Everybody likes the excitement of that kind of growth, but I'm talking about the cost, what it's going to cost us now to see that growth continue. We're at a crossroad in our church and I mean young people as well as a, every member of this body working together. There's a second law, and it's, time's getting away, and I've got to get to it and get some other points in here before it's over. second law is this, that we must make room for the function of others, verse 17. We must make room for the function of others. That's hard to do. It, it's hard to, to believe or to, to accept the fact that somebody else can do it as well as I can do it. But I I want you to understand me and I want you to hear me well. The ministry and the function and the life of the church, its program or whatever you want to call it, cannot be dependent upon just a few people. It can't revolve around a few people. It won't function in the first place that way. It won't won't last that way. Second place, it robs the other people of their gift and their ministry. Now, let's suppose that I'm, I'm, I'm directing or teaching a large class of people. And there might be 50 people in that one class that I teach. But suppose that there are five people in that class who have the gift of teaching but have no place to teach because there's so many humongous classes and just need one or two teachers. That means that I must be willing to step aside, my control, my hold over a large number, take a small group and develop them and let somebody take a small group and develop them and another person take a small group and develop them. That's the way God has designed it. All right, we come to principle number three. Principle number three is found in verse 21 is this, that all the members are equally important and equally dependent. Now look at that person sitting beside you. I want you to just literally look at him or her and just look and say to yourself, I have no need of you. Now some of you are married and uh, uh, you're not about to say that. Uh, some of you are uh, working on it and uh, you're not about to say that. I don't want you to feel that way in the fellowship of the church. I don't want you to feel that way, period. I have no need of you. Now there are two laws, two things I want to say about verse 21 about this point. Number one is that the weakest member is important. In fact, the Apostle Paul goes to a great elaborate detail to show that sometimes the weakest member is the most important. Now, if you don't believe that, you let this little gizmo in your inner ear act up. I don't don't even know the name of it. I've never seen one. I've seen pictures of them, diagrams of them, but you let that little gizmo in your inner ear get infected or, or get messed up uh, that's not a good medical term, but you, you let it get crossways or whatever it does, and you see how, how 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 well you feel. You see if you can stand up even. When that thing that controls the equilibrium and the, and the and the feeling that comes in the stomach pretty pretty quickly, you're on your back and you're begging for mercy because that little member which seems so weak is vitally important. Now hear this. That little person that you never see, that little person whose name you need, don't even know, that is just kind of moving about some Sundays, you watch them in the, in the, coming into the congregation. They are vitally important to the body of this church. As a matter of fact, Jesus, Paul said, inspired by Jesus himself, that they are even the most important. The second principle that this implies is this is that sometimes the important person has weaknesses. The weak person is important. The important person has weakness. Now, nobody has all the spiritual gifts. A guy came into my office one time. Now, this is a fact, true fact. He said, you know, you preached on spiritual gifts, and I've been searching the scriptures. He said, I I don't know one I don't have. He said, I've got them all. I said, well, boy, you're wonderful. If you do, you're great because the only other person I ever knew that had all the spiritual gifts was Jesus. <laughs> and I want to shake your hand, you know, get you down here, get you a picture, you know, put it on my paper. Uh, I don't know anybody who has all the spiritual gifts. Everybody has some weakness. And sometimes we pedestal some people because they're the most dynamic and extroverted and upfront people and we give them jobs and we put them in places in the church, just load them down. And they're not for those positions and those places because they're not gifted for those positions and those places. And they're frustrated and the church is frustrated. And that's why so many folks get so much to do. They quit. And never were meant to be there in the first place. And so that means, to, I'm trying to say this, I want you to understand clearly what I'm trying to say is that those people that we sometimes consider so important have weaknesses, they can't do it all. They can't do everything. And so that's why it's necessary that every member function in the body and all of us fitting together, working together. Now one last thing. These college kids, they give me a hard time. You know, they, they, uh, they get in these meetings, and they, uh, you know, one of them will get up and, and, and mimic me. And, and every time, they'll, they'll either get out their binocca, you know, they just give me a hard time. They'll get out their binocca and do like I do, or they'll say, uh, and this and then I'm through. You know, so <laughs> they, they've got me a little gun shy. Uh, this and then I'm through, this last thing. Fourth rule of a healthy body. All the members show equal concern. Look at verse 26. All the members show equal concern. Now after this great revival we had in our church, the Spirit of God came upon our fellowship. I went to my knees and asked God, Lord, how, to keep, how do you keep that thing going? And I was visiting with one of our church members, and he recommended a book, and I read it called After the Spirit Comes. He said, and God was helping me through him, you know, to find some way, some, you know, I want to be sure not to quench the spirit. Keep the thing, keep this growth, this excitement there. Jack Taylor has a, t- had a chapter in that book called Spiritual Foot Washing. I want you to hang in here now. Watch this. Now, I'm not advocate advocating foot washing. As a matter of fact, there's no evidence in any of the New Testament churches, as you read the epistles, that it was that it became a practice of the church. It's not an ordinance. Another factor that that to consider is that that in the foot washing uh, in, in Jesus' day, it was not done by equals or superiors, done by servants. Uh, it doesn't seem to be. I'm not advocating foot washing as an ordinance, but I do agree with Jack Taylor that there is a ministry and a spirit that underlies it that must be captured, recovered in the church if the church is going to experience continuous renewal. After the Holy Spirit comes, if He continues to do His work, freely do His work in the church, then we're going to have to capture, we're going to have to discover the the counterpart to physical foot washing, which is spiritual foot washing. And I want to emphasize that I'm not advocating the physical act. It is not as important even as the spiritual principle and, and, and the ministry, the spirit behind it. But I am saying that the New Testament church somehow captured that spirit that underlies that physical act. And when it's present, the church is healthy. When it's not, it's unhealthy. Now what is spiritual foot washing? It's that humbling of ourselves. Oh, I hate to use the word because it's such a threat. It's that humbling of ourselves. It's that laying aside. It's that condescending. It's that humbling that humbling. It's hard to look down on somebody when you're washing their feet. Isn't it? It's that spirit that, that goes to a hurting person. You does not have to be a best friend. Goes to that hurting person and sits down beside him and says, I just want to come and sit with you and hurt with you and love you a little bit. You heard the story about the little girl who came in late. She was tardy. Her mother said, had sent her to the store. She came back after a long delay. She said, honey, where have you been? She said, well, I, one of my little fr- playmates fallen and broken her doll and I sat down, I, I, I helped her. She said, well, what could you do to help fix her doll? She said, I didn't help her fix her doll. I just sat down beside her and helped her cry. That spiritual foot washing. It's when you go to that person whose friendship you used to cherish and there's something now between you that's, that's cold and, and, and there's a problem there and you just know it and you sit down with that person without a basin or without a towel but with a tear, you wash their feet spiritually. You get things right. I might, I might wash a, a missionary's feet this morning uh, when I pray for him a thousand miles away A few months back I had a problem with a friend of mine and I decided I'd wash his feet. So I called him up on the telephone and I said, look, our friendship is more important than this. I want you to forgive me. I want to wash your feet. He said, Gerald, there have been hundreds of times he said, I wanted to call you. He said, I've even passed by your town. I've wanted to come down there and I just couldn't and we both wept. That's spiritual foot washing. And Larry handed me under the leadership of God. I'm sure he knew I, he knew I needed something for this sermon. A little book that I'd already read. Come share the being. In this book, Bob Benson tells about a guy who came, electrician came to work on his work on his uh, building and. He was just a chatterbox. They called him Motor Mouth. He just talked all the time, just happy and good, etc. His name was Richard. Everybody liked Richard. And they decided if they ever needed an electrician, they were going to call Richard again. So when they needed one, somebody said, how about Richard? And they said, didn't you know about Richard? He said, no. I said, well, three or four months ago, one of his colleagues came by to pick him up in the carpool. He when I came outside of his trailer, told, told his friends to come on to work, I'll be there in a few minutes. I'm running a little late, went back inside, went in the bedroom. Came out of the bedroom, went over to where his wife was washing dishes. They had been quarreling. He tapped her on the shoulder. She turned around just in time to see him blow his brains out. Said, Bob Benson, there have been a hundred times when I asked Richard, How are you doing? But I guess I never asked him in a way that would make him want to tell me. And I thought about Mr. Gunner. I've asked that man 50 times this summer. How you doing, Mr. Gunner? How you feeling? But I guess I never asked him in a way that would make him want to tell me. And I'm sad about it. I'm broken hearted and I just know that there are just hundreds of people who even make up the body of this church who are hurting for somebody care pray with me father Oh dear Lord, dear Father. We just we marvel at the way you've put the church together. How you've joined it. Every member fitting together to grow into the likeness of Christ. And my desire this morning is that the body would be the body. Oh Christ send the signal to us today as to what you want us to do. And I pray that in the urging of that signal there would be those of us who would say, here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. I pray for this in the name of Jesus and for His sake. Now look this way right now, would you? There will be three invitations that we'll offer today. The first invitation is for you to come, give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Now Jesus died to purchase for you a place in heaven. And He offers you that place as a free gift. There's some of you this morning who could stand to testify. You know, I trusted Jesus Christ and He gave me a new life, a new birth. We want you to come this morning. We prayed for you to come. The angels in heaven await your coming. Jesus died for you to come. Give your heart and life to Him. He wants to save you, to make you new, forgive your sin. So when the invitation is given, we ask you to come and just say, I want to come and give my heart to Jesus Christ. I want to be saved. Sam and Lee and Tim will be down here to help you. Second invitation, these are simultaneously extended and offered, is for you to come this morning to push your life in the church. Now, you're here in Durant, perhaps in college. You're a member somewhere, some other place. That's a wonderful church, and you love it. But God, in His strange and wonderful way, has brought you to Durant. His body is here. His fellowship is here. And you need to complete your life and the body of this church by placing your life here. We're incomplete without you if God wants you here. The third invitation is for you to come this morning to say, Look, I'm a member of that body, this body. I want to put my life here. I want to begin to serve the Lord. I'll do what I can do. I'll find what God wants me to do. It might be to stay in the nursery once a month. It may be to man the television. It might be to just to sweep up and clean up. I want, to, I want you to know that I have not been serving God in the church and I want to come and I want to do that. I think many of you are going to come because I know you'll do what God wants you to do and God has spoken in this service. So we'll stand. The choir will sing. We want you to step right in. It's easier to come right at the first. Come right now.